Hey guys, how's it going? Sunny D here. Thanks for tuning in to the YFYI podcast. Back with another episode. It's time we're going to be getting into our story time. The episode you're about to listen to is going to be part one of the next study. It's going to be the Starbucks story. One of my favorite companies. I'm a consumer. I'm a believer. I'm a fan. I'm an all things Starbucks person, um, which is kind of crazy. I didn't understand what the hype was it's definitely not about the coffee it's about the experience yes the coffee is good but there's plenty of good coffee out there but through this study we're going to be getting into that origin story how this 49 year old company began i'm going to be reading some excerpts from pour your heart into it which is uh, by howard schultz the chairman and ceo and former ceo of starbucks um he's kind of in his in his uh, next phases of life now. He's turned over the reins, but he's the guy who uh, built it up to what it is. Um, and this book is about how Starbucks built a company one cup at a time. And so I'm excited to get into this and share just some really inspiring and, and motivating tales from this great company, Starbucks. So I hope you guys are ready uh, to enjoy and let's get into the episode. All right, here we go. Good morning, good morning, good morning, everyone. Good morning, it is Monday, May 25th. Happy Memorial Day. First and foremost, if you're waking up this morning, you're probably uh, waking up, maybe you have the day off. I know some people are working today, maybe um, you are not one of them if you're watching story time. But I just wanted to say that first and foremost, Happy Memorial Day. Today's a day we, you know, we get to celebrate the lives and remember our uh, service men and women who gave the ultimate sacrifice and just wanted to uh, say Happy Memorial Day to all of the, um, the people that are still serving, the people that have served. If you're um, still downrange, if you have served, if you know someone that's served, make sure to give them a, um, give them, send them a message, give them a hello today as we celebrate today's Memorial Day. Um, and good morning if you're just joining. Um, you're in the right place. This is story time. So it's Monday morning. So I've been coming to you guys Monday mornings. We get together, we do story time. Um, this is gonna be the episode number 36. 36, so 36 times um, we've sat down together and we've had a story time session. So story time, you know, if you're just joining, I'm just getting on to story time, just hearing about story time. Story time is an idea that I had. I wanted to do this for a long time and kind of put it off, put it off, put it off. And I put it off because why? Because I was busy. I was busy, busy, busy and uh, couldn't make it happen. And so when we all, you know, got sent home, we got sent to our rooms, we got sent home because of the coronavirus, the corona. Uh, corona pandemic set out I was like you know what now I'm gonna start story time and so 36 episodes I started story time and here we are we're gonna keep story time moving um, it's it's a time where I get to come and share with you guys different stories and stories from um, lots of different places lots of different people you know the first like 24 25 episodes I was sharing with you guys stories um, from you know my journey my experiences um, the two books that I wrote the YFY book series and after 24 episodes I had read through both of those books and shared a ton of stories and I was like now what do I do do I just stop doing story time um, do I you know hang it up do I say all right story time's over see you guys later um, so as I started looking around the library and I started thinking you know what I want to keep story time going I don't want to like stop it um, so I started going into the library and looking at some of the books and some of the companies that have inspired me over the years. And I decided I wanted to share some of their stories, some of their, their origin stories, how they came to be. So we've been going through different companies each week and I've been sharing with you. And the origin stories are cool because a lot of these companies, we see them, you know, where they are today. You know, when you see a company like McDonald's, or you see a company like Starbucks or Ikea or Patron or Paul Mitchell or whatever that company is, you see that company for what it is today and you may not know the origin story and that's really what fascinated me 
you know, the most as I started to become a business owner and I started, you know, developing my career and I started looking at these great companies and looking at these great stories and I realized, man, there's so much rich history there and like you would have never thought. You know, I just finished um, reading a book on Samsung and I'm going to be bringing them, you know, bringing that story here to story time in one of the future episodes. But to think that it started as a vegetable store and a dried fish, you know, they had vegetable and dried fish. And then it turned into this giant, you know, uh, super rival of Apple and creating, you know, phones and electronics and all over the world. But to hear that origin story and to learn like where these businesses come from um, is what I think is really incredible. So I'm hoping to bring some of these experiences to you guys through story time and also share some of the things that I've learned and things that I've been inspired by that have, I've incorporated into my business. Now, I haven't been a business owner as long as these companies, most of these companies are been around since before I was even born. But <clears throat> when I started my company, 10 going on 11 years ago, um, I really was like, man, there's so much I didn't know. So how can I kind of like take a shortcut in a sense? How can I like speed up the learning curve? You know, and, and I, the way I did it was I started studying these companies. And so I was able to learn different things from different companies that I could implement into my, um, into my own business, into my own uh, teachings and learning. So if you're here for story time, this is the right place. Um, share this if you're just jumping on if you're on Instagram we're on Instagram live we're on a couple different Facebook pages uh, we're on you know Twitter live We've got the podcast going all these different things so wherever you're tuning in from I'm looking at different screens here so wherever you're tuning in from um, share the stream invite some friends um, because this week the company that I'm going to be studying the company that I'm going to be going through <clears throat> the company that I'm going to be sharing their stories and their origin story this week is Starbucks. So I put out a little uh, poll yesterday and I was in between. I've got a lot of great ones. I'm looking at the books I've got. You know, I have McDonald's, the Ritz-Carlton Company. We've got Mercedes. We've got Patron. We've got Coca-Cola. We've got Apple. We've got Ikea. Uh, we had Starbucks. You know, so I had all these... And I put out, I was kind of in between whether to go into the Coca-Cola story, which is, I mean, it's incredible. Can't wait to get to that company. <clears throat> or Starbucks. And the surveys came back, it was like a 70-30 split. So 70, a little over 70% of people were like Starbucks. So that's the company that we're gonna be going through this week. Now, Starbucks, there's lots of different books on Starbucks. And I'll be sharing those with you. Uh, I'm starting with one that I'm gonna be coming out of today. But there's the, uh, there's the Starbucks Experience, which is you know by Joseph Michelli, who also wrote the book I covered a couple weeks ago on the Ritz-Carlton Company. There's also Onward, which is by Howard Schultz, who's the, you know, the founder and former CEO of Starbucks. And then there's also this book here, which is Pour Your Heart Into It. And this book is the one I'm going to be focusing on, pour your heart into it. Uh, the, the reason why I'm going to start with this one is because this is like Howard's, I'm pretty sure this is Howard's first book, and it also it gets into really the origins. Uh, the subtitle here, How Starbucks Built a Company One Cup at a Time. And so this goes all the way through 1997, and I think those... Um, those really before 1997 was really the formidable years, you know, and you see Starbucks today like I'm a I'm a huge fan and and the reason I was attracted to all of these different companies because I am a fan of these companies. I've done business with these companies. Um, in some cases, I own stock in some of these companies as well. Um, I'm not getting paid to, you know, present any of this information. These are just, you know, you know, just these are just stories that I want to share and uh, because I'm passionate about them and I've learned a lot from studying these companies and so this will be the first part uh, we'll call this part one of the Starbucks study and if you're you know hopefully I mean you've heard of the company first and foremost I mean who hasn't you know Starbucks you see the iconic uh, the iconic green uh, green symbol with the the lady the mermaid you know that's on there I mean most of us know this company uh, you can't really these days go anywhere without probably within five minutes of your house driving by a Starbucks coffee shop somewhere. 
Um, and you know, when you think about where they came from, from being this little store, and I'm gonna share some of that backstory here in a minute, um, to where they are today, spanning across the globe, um, it's just an incredible thing. And one of the things that really kind of inspired me and attracted me to learning about Starbucks mm -hmm. was that they're, they're really um, obsessed with that customer experience and being able to deliver an experience every time you go to one of their stores. And I know for me, um, in the salon 1.0 at our at our salons, that's one of the things that we're you know obsessed about, wanting to be able to deliver a great experience every time you come in. You know, not just come in the salon and get a good haircut. I mean, hopefully, you can get a good haircut at any place you go to if you're getting it you know from a licensed professional. And maybe good, maybe not great, but at least good, at least decent, right? I mean, doesn't matter. Um, you know, like when you're looking at it just as from a haircut, uh, what you're going to get, right? Somebody's going to cut your hair. But when you start looking into, okay, you know, I want the quality to go better. You start looking at different places and then you start to get into, okay, now the quality at some point, it gets uh, pretty solid. Like you get, you know, a great haircut from a lot of different people, but then what's going to make your business or your experience different? Then you start to look at all the other things outside of the haircut. If you're trained great at uh, doing you know, a haircut and doing color and, and you've got that, what else is gonna be different? Because there's lots of people that can do great haircuts. There's lots of people that can do great color, but what's gonna be the difference? And I really think that's where Starbucks started um, because they looked at it <clears throat> and they understood. You can get a cup of coffee anywhere but the Starbucks experience, which we're talking about, it's not going to be the it's not going to be, you know, the the same cup of coffee, even though it's the same cup of coffee. And I think that's where Starbucks became a differentiator, and they started to look at it because, I mean, truth be told, like the beans, yeah, is it the beans? I don't think it's the beans. I mean, you can go. I mean, from McDonald's to Dunkin' Donuts to Starbucks to if you're getting into the art of you know the the craft of coffee making there's some really great independent you know coffee places there's one actually not too far um, from me sometimes i go by there it's in uh, in riverview and it's it's uh what is it it's i think it's just called it's just called it's called found uh, i think it's foundation foundation coffee company give them a little shout out um and, and it's a small little like spot it's like a um, almost like a little, you know, food truck style, like trailer setup. They got a little area, and they—I mean, it's amazing coffee. Um, and you know, the experience, you know, is even really cool. And they're like a one-store shop, and that's really where Starbucks started. And then just kind of built from that, and built from that, and built from that. So you can get good coffee anywhere, but why do you choose Starbucks? When you can get really a cup of coffee for like a dollar, if we're talking commodity and pricing, probably a dollar. But why would you choose a Starbucks over a you know a McDonald's or over a um, I don't know Dunkin' Donuts or over the place I was just talking about Foundation or over another local spot? I mean because of the experience that they created. And so this week as we're going through, we're going to be talking about um, that experience. And I'll share some of those things that I've, you know, taken and learned from them and incorporated into um, into the experience that we try to deliver also at the Salon 1.0. Um, so the book again, it's Pour Your Heart Into It: How Starbucks uh, Built, you know, a company one cup at a one cup at a time. And this is by Howard Schultz. He's the uh, former CEO. He's not the CEO anymore. I mean, if you look at Starbucks where it is today, starting from that one little coffee shop in Seattle. I mean, just to give you, uh, just to give you a, a little bit of the the numbers, their revenue for 2018, uh, 24 billion dollars. Um, which I mean, if you think about it, I mean, you're talking the size of the company. Uh, it, it's unbelievable. They were founded in 1971, so 49 years ago. And so that's why it's cool to get into some of these origin stories because a lot of people just see this company, this huge company with stores everywhere, but 49 years ago, as of 2018, they had 28,218 locations worldwide. Um, and then Howard Schultz, who wrote this book, he was the former um, 
CEO. I think now he's the chairman of the company. Kevin Johnson is currently the president and CEO. Um, and he's got a pretty rich history with some great companies. I believe he was, I want to say he was with Apple. I think he was also with Target before. Um, so merchandising and stores and operations. So he's got a, a handle on a lot of those things. They've got over 290,000 employees and that was as of 2018. And so think about that, 49 years in the making. You know, I'm with you know a company that we carry in our salons and we're exclusively partnered with Paul Mitchell. Paul Mitchell's celebrating its 40th year um, this year, which is incredible. So Starbucks, you know, a little bit, they had a little, uh, you know, nine year head start. So March 31st, 1971. And it was, that's where it was founded. Uh, Pike Place Market, which Pike Place is one of their, um, it's kind of like their, they always have it. It's like their daily, you know, regular, if you just go in for like a regular coffee, you know, Pike Place is like their staple coffee that they have there. So that's Pike Place Market, Elliott Bay, and that's in Seattle, Washington. Um, so that's where they started. You know, how do you get from starting with one little store in Pike Place Market in 1971, 49 years ago, uh, to having, you know, over almost 30,000 stores, 24, $25 billion in revenue um, over 49 years. That's what we're going to talk about. Um, so we're going to go back to the beginning. We're going to go back to Howard and where Howard grew up, um, his humble beginnings, and learn a little bit about uh, what that looks like. So this first chapter, Imagination, Dreams, and Humble Origins, starts with a quote. It is only with the heart that one can see rightly. What is essential is invisible to the eye. And that was Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, the little prince. And I'm drinking some Starbucks this morning. I figured, you know, and I had tea, you know, I've been had last week it was tea every day, so I was like, you know, I got to have Starbucks. Um I actually I mean, I like going to the Starbucks experience. I like going to the store, um, whether it be drive-through. Normally, I'll do a mobile pickup, which they are literally crush the game when it comes to like the mobile app. And uh, they have spent more at Starbucks because of that mobile app than ever. Because you order ahead, you go, you pick it up. Um, but nowadays, you know, with most of the stores being closed, drive-through has been huge. You can still do the mobile, go through the drive-through. But I also mix my own. Uh, blend my own at home because I use their 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 machine they came out with it's I don't even know if they still have the machine available but they still have the pods little verissimo pods it's kind of like the Keurig and it makes one cup of coffee they have a lot of different flavors and here's a here's a pro tip what I did was uh, I you know I go to the store and then the syrups that they have I like just classic normally I just get like a cafe latte new normally I do a tall which you know in, uh, in, in layman's terms is the small, and I'll do like a couple pumps of classic, and that's it. Pretty basic, straight up, just old school cafe latte, couple pumps of classic, maybe I'll throw in an extra shot of espresso. Um, so what I did was I buy, I bought the classic from uh, the bottle from Starbucks, and then I can make my Brissimo at home, couple pumps of classic. I don't have the steam milk machine right now, but it's all good, um, but you know, that's it. Um, Starbucks love the coffee. Yep, coffee latte. That's it. So now, if so, if anybody, you know, my birthday is in January. So if you're feeling like, you know what, Sunny's pretty awesome. I mean, you want to get me an espresso machine or or a, uh, a a steamer like the milk to make the milk. That's the only thing I'm missing. So I mean, I do the best I can. I stir it and stir it and stir it, and I put a little bit of creamer in, and I'm done. So. Um, and it's, I mean, that's it, you know, light and sweet, just like me. Uh, but that's my, uh, my Verissimo ritual. Um, but it's, I love the smell, you know, I love, you know, and, and I mean, it, it tastes great. And it's one of the things that I do, but I do also like going into a Starbucks and having the Starbucks experience. Um, sometimes I'm working there. If I'm working, you know, I can work out of there. Um, but, you know, that's, uh, 
that's another way that they're able to continue that. So being able to have a take-home option. Like in the salons, you know, we have you know, our shampoos, our conditioners, and our styling products that people can then purchase and take home. And you can kind of recreate a little bit of that salon experience at home. It's the same thing with um, Starbucks. They created this so you can have part of them at home. And it hasn't stopped me from going there. I mean, you know, and, and you have to think about like for a box of the Verissimo pods, you're paying, I don't know, 10 or 12 bucks and you get 12 of them. So it's like a dollar a coffee. Um, and then you go to the store, you buy a cafe latte, you're talking, it's probably five bucks. So why would you pay five times more because of that experience? Um, so I still enjoy having that experience. So we're going to get into this, uh, this first part here. And it tastes really good. Awesome. So imagination, dreams, and humble origins. <clears throat> Starbucks as it is today is actually the child of two parents. One is the original Starbucks, which was founded in 1971, a company passionately committed to world-class coffee and dedicated to educating its customers one-on-one -on -one about what great coffee can be. The other is the vision and values I brought to the company, the combination of competitive drive and a profound desire to make everyone in the organization win together. I wanted to blend coffee with romance, to dare to achieve what others said was impossible, to defy the odds with innovative ideas, and to do all this with elegance and style. In truth, Starbucks needed the influence of both parents to become what it is today. Starbucks prospered for 10 years before I discovered it. I learned of its early history from its founders, and I'll retell that story in chapter two in this book. I'm gonna relate the story the way I experienced it, starting with my early life, because many of the values that shaped the growth of the enterprise trace their roots back to crowded to a crowded apartment in Brooklyn, New York. So the, the founders, so 10 years, so think about this, Starbucks was moving along for 10 years before Howard came into the picture. Kind of similar to, you know, last week we had the, uh, we were studying the McDonald's Corporation. The McDonald's brothers, if you remember, it was like 1940, they were moving, they had that one hamburger stand, 15 cents for a hamburger in San Bernardino. It was 10 years before Ray Kroc came into the picture and saw this and was like, boom, we gotta take this to the world. And so it's similar in, in the way, it's kind of interesting how these things happen. So back to the story. One thing I've noticed about romantics, they try to create a new, <clears throat> and better world from the drabness of everyday life. That is Starbucks' aim too. We try to create in our stores an oasis, a little neighborhood spot where you can take a break, listen to some jazz, and ponder universal or personal or even whimsical questions over a cup of coffee. What kind of person dreams up such a place? From my personal experience, I'd say that the more uninspiring your origins, the more likely you are to use your imagination and invent worlds where everything seems possible. That's certainly true of me. I was three when my family moved out of my grandmother's apartment into the Bayview Projects in 1956. They were in the heart of Canarsie on Jamaica Bay, 15 minutes from the airport, 15 minutes from Coney Island. Back then, the projects were not a frightening place but a friendly, large, leafy compound with a dozen eight-story brick buildings, all brand new. The elementary school, PS 272, was right on the grounds of the projects, complete with playground, basketball courts, and paved schoolyard. Still, no one was proud of living in the projects. Our parents were all what we now call the working poor. Still, I had many happy moments during my childhood. Growing up in the projects made for a well-balanced value system as it forced me to get along with many different kinds of people. Our building alone housed about 150 families and we all shared one tiny elevator. Each apartment was very small and our family started off in a cramped two-bedroom unit. Both my parents came from working-class families, residents of the East New York section of Brooklyn for two generations. My grandfather died young, so my dad had to quit school and start working as a teenager. During World War II, he was a medic in the Army in the South Pacific, in New Caledonia, 
and Saipan, where he contracted yellow fever and malaria. As a result, his lungs were always weak, and he often got colds. After the war, he got a series of blue-collar jobs, but never found himself, never had a plan for his life. My mother was a strong-willed and powerful woman. Her name is Elaine, but she goes by the nickname Bobby. Later, she worked as a receptionist, but when we were growing up, she took care of us three kids full-time. My sister Ronnie, close to me in age, shared many of the same hard childhood experiences, but to an extent, I was able to insulate my brother Michael from the economic hardship I felt and give him the kind of guidance my parents couldn't offer. He tagged along with me whenever, wherever I went. I used to call him the shadow. Despite the eight-year gap in age, I believed an extremely close. I developed an extremely close relationship with Michael, acting like a father to him. When I had watched, when I could watch with pride as he became a good athlete, a strong student, and ultimately a success in his own business career. I played sports with the neighborhood kids from dawn to dusk every day of my childhood. My dad joined us whenever he could, after work and on the weekends. Each Saturday and Sunday morning starting at 8 a.m., hundreds of us kids would gather in the schoolyard. You had to be good there because if you didn't win, you'd be out of the game, forced to watch for hours before you could get back in. So I played to win. Luckily for me, I was a natural athlete. Whether it was baseball, basketball, or football, I jumped right in and played hard till I got good at it. I used to organize pickup games of baseball and basketball with whatever kids lived in the neighborhood. Jewish kids, Italian kids, black kids, nobody ever had to lecture us about diversity. We lived it. It's always been a part of my personality to develop an unbridled passion about things that interest me. My first passion was for baseball, and that time, at that time in the boroughs of New York, every conversation started and ended with baseball. Connections and barriers with other people were made not by race or religion, but by the team you rooted for. The Dodgers had just left for Los Angeles. They broke my father's heart and he never forgave them. But we still had many of the baseball greats. I remember walking home and hearing play-by-play -play radio reports blaring out of open windows on every side of the courtyard. I was a diehard Yankees fan and my dad took my brother and me to countless games. We never had good seats, but that didn't matter. It was the thrill of just being there. Mickey Mantle was my idol. I had his number seven on my shirts, sneakers, everything I owned. When I played baseball, I mimicked Mickey Mantle's stance and gestures. When the Mick retired, the finality of what was hard to believe. How could he stop playing? My father took me to both Mickey Mantle days at Yankee Stadium, September 18, 1968, and June 8, 1969. As I watched the tributes to him and listened to the other players say goodbye and heard him speak, I felt deeply sad. Baseball was never the same for me after that. The Mick was such an intense presence in our lives that years later, when he died, I got phone calls of consolation from childhood friends I hadn't heard from in decades. Coffee was not a big part of my childhood. My mother drank instant coffee. When company came over, she'd buy some canned coffee and take out her old percolator. I remember listening to it grumble and watching that little glass cup until finally the coffee popped up into it like a jumping bean. It was only as I grew older that I began to realize how tight the family finances were. On rare occasions, we'd go to a Chinese restaurant and my parents would discuss what dishes to order based solely on how much cash my dad had in his wallet that day. I felt angry and ashamed when I realized that the sleepaway camp I attended in the summer was a subsidized program for underprivileged kids. After that, I refused to go back. By the time I got to high school, I understood the stigma of living in the projects. Canarsie High School was less than a mile away, but to get there, I had to walk down streets lined with small, single-family homes and duplexes. The people who lived there, I knew, looked down on us. Once I asked out a girl from a different part of New York, I remember how her father's face dropped in stages as he asked, Where do you live? 
We live in Brooklyn, I answered. Where? Canarsie. Where? Bayview Projects. Oh. There was an unspoken judgment about me and his reaction, and it irked me to see it. As the oldest of three children, I had to grow up quickly, and I started earning money at an early age. At 12, I had a paper route. Later, I worked behind the counter at the local luncheonette. At 16, I got an after-school job in the garment district of Manhattan at a furrier, stretching animal skins. It was horrendous work and left thick calluses on my thumbs. I spent one hot summer in a sweatshop steaming yarn at a knitting factory. I always gave part of my earnings to my mother, not because she insisted, but because I felt bad for the position my parents were in. Still, in the 1950s and early 60s, the American dream was vibrant, and we all felt entitled to a piece of it. My mother drummed that into us. She herself had never finished high school, and her biggest dream was a college education for all three of her kids. Wise and pragmatic in her blunt, opinionated way, she gave me tremendous confidence. Over and over, she would put powerful models in front of me, pointing out individuals who had made something of their lives and insisting that I, too, could achieve anything I set my heart on. She encouraged me to challenge myself, to place myself in situations that weren't comfortable so that I could learn to overcome adversity. I don't know how she came to that knowledge because she didn't live by those rules, but she willed us to succeed. Years later, during one of her visits to Seattle, I showed my mother our new offices at Starbucks Center. As we walked around passing departments and workstations, seeing people talking on the phone and typing on computers, I could tell her head was just spinning at the size and scope of the operation. Finally, she edged closer to me and whispered in my ear, Who pays all these people? It was beyond her imagination. During my childhood, I never dreamed of working in business. The only entrepreneur I knew was my uncle, Bill Farber. He had a small paper factory in the Bronx where he later hired my father as a foreman. I didn't know what work I would eventually do, but I knew I had to escape the struggle my parents lived with every day. I had to get out of the projects, out of Brooklyn. I remember lying in bed and thinking at night and thinking, what if I had a crystal ball and could see the future? But I quickly shut out the thought, for I realized I would be too frightened to look into it. I was aware of only one escape route, sports. Like the kids in the movie Hoop Dreams, my friends and I thought we were the, that they were the ticket to a great life. In high school, I applied myself to my schoolwork only when I had to, because I learned in the classroom what seem, seemed irrelevant. Instead, I spent hours and days playing football. I'll never forget the day I made the team. As a symbol of that honor, I got my letter, the big blue C, that identified me as an accomplished athlete, but my mother couldn't afford to pay $29 for the letter jacket and asked me to wait a week or so until dad got his paycheck. I was devastated. Everybody at school had been planning to wear those jackets on one agreed upon day. I couldn't show up without a jacket, but I also didn't want to make my mother feel any worse. So I borrowed the money from a friend to buy the jacket and I wore it on the appointed day, but I hid it from my parents until they were able to afford it. My biggest triumph in high school was becoming quarterback, which made me a big man on campus among the 5,700 students of Canarsie High. The school was so poor that we didn't even have a football field, and all of our games were away games. Our team was pretty bad, but I was one of the better players on it. One day a recruiter came to scout an opposing player at one of our games. I didn't know he was there. A few days later, though, I received a letter from what in my frame of reference sounded like another planet, Northern Michigan University. They were recruiting for the football team. Was I interested? I whooped and hollered. It felt as good as an invitation to the NFL draft. Northern Michigan eventually offered me a football scholarship, the only offer I got. Without it, I don't know if I would have realized my mother's dream of going to college. So I'm going to jump in here. So, you know, a lot of us, you know, I think about this, you know, your parents, 
Um, if they went through, you know, they work and struggle and try to give us a better life. A lot of our parents did that. And you always kind of want that. You always want to have, you know, you know, build up for your kids something so they can have a better life than what you had. And that's kind of exactly where his parents were. They're looking at his life, um, looking at all of their kids and thinking, you know, what could we do? Um, and his mom, you know, just showing him examples, right? Um, kind of like these examples of, of different people that have, you know, quote unquote made it, different people that have um, accomplished things that could look like maybe impossible to others, but they've been able to pull it off. Different, you know, stories. So his mom is sharing these things with him and telling him about these people and like, you know, Howard, you know, you could make it, like you could be something uh, bigger than where we're at now. You could take your life, but you know, like I want you to go to college and for a lot of people, you know, you don't have a lot of prospects, right? If you don't have the finances, you're like, how am I going to pull this off? And so sports has always been, uh, for kids that are growing up poor, you know, sports has always been an outlet. Sports has always been a, um, a place where, you know, you could take and uh, maybe make something out of yourself, um, get yourself into a better position. And so that became kind of his focus. And as you can see from those humble beginnings, there's, you know, there's a lot of, uh, things in question, you know, just about his future. And so that's where, you know, his journey goes and he, he's able to, to make it into college and he's able to really, his goal was really just getting out of uh, Brooklyn, right? He just wants to get out of Brooklyn. And so he's off to Michigan University and we're going to jump back in here. So he says, I was out. Uh, we, when we finally arrived, the campus looked like an America I had seen only in the movies with budding trees, laughing students, flying frisbees. I was out of Brooklyn at last. By coincidence, Starbucks was founded that same year in Seattle, a city even farther beyond my imagination at the time. I loved the freedom and the open space of college, although I felt lonely and out of place at first. I made some close friends. I made some close friends my freshman year and ended up rooming with them for four years on and off campus. Twice I sent for my brother and he flew out to visit. One year for Mother's Day, I hitchhiked back to New York, surprising her. It turned out I wasn't as good a football player as I thought and ended up not playing after all. To stay in school, I took out loans and worked part-time and summer jobs to pay for my expenses. I had a night job as a bartender and I even sold <clears throat> my blood sometimes. Still, those were mostly fun years, a time with little responsibility. With a draft number of 332, I didn't have to worry about going to Vietnam. I majored in communications and took courses in public speaking and interpersonal communications. During senior year, I also picked up a few business classes because I was starting to worry about what I would do after graduation. I maintained a B average, applying myself only when I had to take a test or make a presentation. After four years, I became the first college graduate in my family. To my parents, I had attained the big prize, a diploma, but I had no direction. No one ever helped me see the value in the knowledge I was gaining. I've often joked since then, if someone had provided me with direction and guidance, I really could have been somebody. And so he makes it through college, right? Just kind of stumbling through the football thing doesn't work out. Um, but getting the education, you know, and for myself, like I never uh, went to college, never had the college experience, but the value in education, right? That's one thing, no matter what, like the coronavirus, whatever's going on, uh, the financial, you know, markets crash. Um, you know, if you still have, you know, your, your faculties of your mind, um, you can maintain the education that you get. It's, it's really priceless because it stays with you. And so he's getting this education and at the time, you know, maybe not thinking like he's going to do anything with it, maybe not seeing the value in it, uh, maybe not thinking it matters, but he's still getting this education and this experience. So education for me as an educator, uh, becoming an educator, one of the, the greatest things is, you know, I get to study the information I'm going to teach before I teach it. So I'm constantly in learning mode, learning and learning and learning. And then when you start teaching it, you also um, hear it again. So then you get to hear it, you know, you get to hear it as the student. If I'm teaching you, you hear it maybe one time from me, but I get to hear it twice, 
right? I get to hear it, you know, when I'm learning it and then when I'm teaching it again to you. So uh, educating and education is something I've always been passionate about, uh, you know, and so as he's going through this experience and I sucked at school, like I was, I, you know, even in high school, like I was like a 1.7 uh, GPA and, you know, just garbage. I was a garbage student. Uh, but there were, I remember there were certain um, teachers and certain things I would hear or learn. And it would kind of be like, you know, that's interesting. And now later on in life, you know, after high school, now I've become like, like a, a, a mega student, you know, I've got, you know, I, I'm learning constantly and reading and studying and it's like crazy. If only I had this passion when I was in school, that would have been kind of a uh, nice, um, but I wasn't there. I just wasn't there, um, wasn't ready to be there. But knowing that there is value in the education, I think that's where um, his parents were pushing him, why they wanted him to get, you know, get education in the first place, um, because they knew there would be something, it would lead to something greater. Um, so let's jump back in here. So it took me years before I found my passion in life. Each step after that discovery was a quantum leap into something unknown, each move riskier than the last. But getting out of Brooklyn and earning a college degree gave me the courage to keep on dreaming. For years, I hid the fact that I grew up in the projects. I didn't lie about it, but I just didn't bring it up, for it wasn't such it wasn't much of a credential. But however much I tried to deny them, those memories of my early experiences were imprinted indelibly in my mind. I could never forget what it's like to be on the other side afraid to look into the crystal ball. In December 1994, a New York Times article about Starbucks success mentioned that I had grown up in the projects of Canarsie. After it appeared, I received letters from Bayview and other blighted neighborhoods. Most came from mothers trying to guide their kids who said that my story gave them hope. The odds of my coming out of the environment in which I was raised and getting to where I am today are impossible to gauge. How did it happen? The sun shone on me. It's true, as my brother Michael always tells me, but my story is as much of a perseverance and drive as it is of talent and luck. I willed it to happen. I took my life in my hands, learned from anyone I could grab, I could, grabbed what opportunity I could, and molded my success step by step. Fear of failure drove me at first, but as I tackled each challenge, my anxiety was replaced by a growing sense of optimism. Once you overcome seemingly unsurmountable obstacles, other hurdles become less daunting. Most people can achieve beyond their dreams if they insist upon it. I'd encourage everyone to dream big. Lay your foundations well. Absorb information like a sponge and not be afraid to defy conventional wisdom. Just because it hasn't been done before doesn't mean you shouldn't try. I can't give you any secret recipe for success, any foolproof plan for making it in the world of business, but my own experience suggests that it is possible to start from nothing and achieve even beyond your dreams. On a recent, so I'm gonna jump back in here for a second. So if you, as you're kind of hearing that, um, that last little bit there, now, I remember as I'm reading back through this, the first time like reading this and how inspired I was just by that, um, you know, it kind of connected with me and, and my own kind of story, um, which I shared and uh, a lot when we were going through uh, your first year in the beauty industry and the beginning of that book, I share a lot of my, my backstory. But just reading that, when I read it the first, the first time, just knowing like literally, you know, it doesn't matter where you're at, it doesn't matter... Uh, you know, really when you start, doesn't matter what you have when you start. Um, if you're, you know, persistent, you know, and that was one of the big things there, then, you know, that fear that you have initially, that fear of failure that drives him at first, and then each challenge, you have that anxiety gets replaced by a growing sense of optimism because you have a small win. And sometimes that's what it's about, guys, having like one small win at a time, you're not gonna win every single battle um, but ultimately, if you keep fighting and keep fighting and you keep fighting, um, you could win the war. And that's the war is the big picture, 
right? So we're going through this one at a time, one at a time, one battle at a time. Uh, but the, the big picture, you could definitely win. All right, so we're going to jump in here. So um, every experience, so this, this section here, enough <clears throat> is it not enough. Every experience prepares you for the next one. You just don't ever know what the next one is going to be. After graduating from college in 1975, like a lot of kids, I didn't know what to do next. I wasn't ready to go back to New York, so I stayed in Michigan, working at a nearby ski lodge. I had no mentor, no role model, no special teacher to help me sort out my options. So I took some time to think, but still no inspiration came. After a year, I went back to New York and got a job with Xerox in the sales training program. It was a lucky break since I was able to attend the best sales school in the country, Xerox's $100 million center in Leesburg, Virginia. I learned more there than in college about the worlds of work and business. They trained me in sales, marketing, and presentation skills, and I walked out with a healthy sense of self-esteem. Xerox was a blue chip pedigree company and I got a lot of respect when I told others who my employer was. After completing the course, I spent six months making 50 cold calls a day. I knocked on doors of offices in Midtown Manhattan in a territory that ran from 42nd Street to 48th Street, from the East River to 5th Avenue. It was a fantastic area, but I wasn't allowed to close sales just drum up good prospects. So I got to jump in here for a second because if, okay, so he two big things that I took out of that little section. Number one, he went to school for four years and finished and was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't even, I'm, I don't really know which way to go. Um, so he hangs out, works for a year, goes back to New York and gets a job at Xerox. Um, Xerox, great company. They, um, I've got some history with Xerox. Actually, when I was a kid, I had a, I was a, a you know, I had the uh, the Big Brother. There's a program for inner city, you know, kind of kids. They're, you know, underprivileged um, youth. They're, uh, it's called the Big Brother Big Sister program, where they try to match you up as a kid with a, like a mentor. Um, so I had a, a Big Brother. Uh, I had a couple different ones, but one that I had actually worked for Xerox. So, and I didn't even know too much about it. I just knew I was like, man, this guy's rich. I thought he was like rich. He's working for Xerox, and I mean, he had really nice house, he had nice everything. Um, so he worked at Xerox, and Xerox, you don't hear about it too much these days, but they make like a lot of those big, you know, copy machines. And Xerox became what the name, like you make a, a copy of a piece of paper, like, oh, I need to, you know, I need to Xerox something. It was like a Xerox this, Xerox that. Um, but Xerox was actually the name of the company that made the printers. So he goes and he said he gets more training there going through their school. He learns more there than he did in college, right? So he goes through their training. Um, let's say, let's see. So he's like, I learned more there about the worlds of work and business. I learned more there than in college. And then, so he's get training. And so the training he got, sales, marketing, and presentation skills. And then he says he walked out with a healthy sense of self-esteem. So I know like in hair school, when I went through hair school, and I mean, it's, it's not a focus, right? It's because hair school. Uh, you know, in the hair school that I want to build, uh, which I've been kind of teasing and, and playing around with, but kind of serious too. Um, but the hair school that I want to build is there's going to be a heavy focus on those three things because sales, marketing, and presentation skills, if you have a product or a service like a haircut or a color that you're trying to get out to the world, you're going to need marketing, sales, and presentation skills. And so many, I've you know had so many hairstylists when they come work at the Salon 1.0 that they don't have that training and so we spend a lot of time in our company now and i'm like you know what when you know when eventually you know i decide i want to open a, a beauty school and or a hair school you know it's going to be business and beauty combined uh, but that that those three areas are huge so those three things i mean he's still probably using those skills that he learned today even you know through starbucks and beyond 
Um, so, and also it helps develop his self-esteem when you're able to do a presentation or do a sales pitch and you're going through material and learning how to market not only yourself, because you have to sell yourself, you have to sell your company, you have to sell your business, you have to sell your products, you have to sell your services. Um, but, but trust me, no one is like, that's not their comfort zone. Like you can become more comfortable at it, but standing in front of a room of people speaking, uh, public speaking is a big fear. So presence, presentation skills, you know, what he learns, you know, at the Xerox, in the Xerox training, presentation skills is huge. And then when you add in the marketing and sales training. So he goes through that training and then back into the story. After completing the course, I spent six months making, listen to this, 50 cold calls a day. And that second part right there, why I think that's huge. You know, when you first get started in the beauty industry, when you first get started in any company, right, you got to build your business, right? You're trying to build your book of business, build your clientele. And whether you're doing it, I mean, there's lots of ways to do it nowadays. But if you have business cards, right, have your name on there, you go out, you hand out one business card, you think like, oh, you know, pat yourself on the back, like I just, I'm amazing, right? He's making 50 cold calls which means he's calling people that he's never even spoke to before, that don't know who he is, that don't know about maybe his product or service. He's just picking up the phone, boom, and trying to get somebody on the phone and talk to them, 50 a day. Now, when I first started as a hairstylist, I moved to Tampa, uh, didn't know anybody here, didn't have any clientele, zero, zero, zero. So if you've come from a different you know, state, a different city, a different country, and you're like, well, I don't know anybody, it's not an excuse. I had to get out there and, you know, and I wasn't passing out 50 cards a day, which would be like a, him making a cold call, but like five cards, 10 cards a day for months at a time, months at a time. And they were cold because I was going up to complete strangers. I would go out somewhere and it'd be a complete stranger because I don't know them, they don't know me. You know, and having to learn about that and having to learn how do you do that? How do you introduce yourself? Because, I mean, it could be nerve wracking to the point where, you know, it's like you don't even remember your own name. Like you're like, uh, 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 and you're like freaking out. But it's a skill uh, that you have to, you know, you kind of have to get over yourself. You have to learn uh, because in the world of business, which we're in, you know, the world of building a business, um, it's incredible. So those skills that I just wanted to touch on those too, because 50 cold calls a day, um, going from knocking on doors, boom, 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 you know, it's gonna become, not only the self-esteem is gonna go up, the confidence is gonna go up, but that fear factor is gonna be eliminated over time. And so let's get back into the story here. Cold calling was great training for business. It taught me to think on my feet. So many doors slammed on me that I had to develop a thick skin and a concise sales pitch for a then newfangled machine called a word processor. But the work fascinated me and I kept my sense of humor and adventure. I thrived on the competition, trying to be the best, to be noticed, to be noticed and to provide the most leads to my salesmen. I wanted to win. Finally, I succeeded. I became a full salesman in the same territory. I got to be pretty good at it, wearing a suit, closing sales, and earning good commissions for three years. I sold a lot of machines and outperformed many of my peers. As I proved myself, my confidence grew. Selling, I discovered, has a lot to do with self-esteem, but I can't say I ever developed a passion for word processors. I paid off my college loans and rented an apartment in Greenwich Village with another guy. We were rolling and having a great time. During one summer, eight of us rented a cottage in the Hamptons for the weekends. And it was there on the beach, July 4th weekend, 1978, that I met Sherry Kirsch. With her flash of long, wavy blonde hair and unflagging energy, Sherry attracted me with her impeccable style and class. She was in graduate school studying interior design and also, and also <clears throat> spent summer weekends with a group of friends at the beach. She was not only beautiful, but well-grounded with solid Midwestern values from a close and loving family. We were both starting our careers without a care in the world. We began dating and the more I got to know her, the more I realized what a fine human being she was. 
By 1979, though, I was restless in my job. I wanted something more challenging. A friend told me that a Swedish company, Perstorp, was planning to set up a U.S. division for its Harmer Plast Housewares subsidiary. It seemed like an exciting opportunity to get in on the ground floor of a growing company. Perstorp hired me and sent me to Sweden for three months of training. I stayed in the charming little cobblestone town of Perstorp near Malmo and explored Copenhagen and Stockholm on weekends. Europe overwhelmed me with its sense of history and joy of life. The company initially placed me in a different division, one selling building supplies. They moved me to North Carolina and had me sell components for kitchens and furniture. I hated the product. Who could relate to plastic extruded parts? After 10 months of misery, I couldn't take it anymore. I was ready to give up and go to acting school, anything to get back to New York and be with Sherry. When I threatened to quit, Perstorp not only transferred me back to New York, but also promoted me to vice president and general manager of Hammerplast. I was in charge of the U.S. operations, managing about 20 independent sales reps. They gave me not only a salary of $75,000, but also a company car, an expense account, and unlimited travel, which included trips to Sweden four times a year. Finally, I was selling products I liked, a line of stylish Swedish design kitchen equipment and housewares. As a salesman myself, I knew how to motivate my team of salespeople. I quickly placed the products in high-end retail stores and built up sales volume. I did that for three years and loved it. By age 28, I had it made. Sherry and I moved to Manhattan's Upper East Side where we bought our apartment. Sherry was on the rise in her career working for an Italian furniture maker as a designer and marketer. She painted our walls light salmon and began to use her professional skills to create a home in our loft style space. We had a great life. Going to the theater, dining at restaurants, inviting friends to dinner parties. We even rented a summer house in the Hamptons. My parents couldn't believe I had come so far so fast. In only six years out of college, I had achieved a successful career, a high salary, an apartment I owned. The life I was leading was beyond my parents' best dreams for me. Most people would be satisfied with it. So no one, especially my parents, could understand why I was getting antsy. But I sensed that something was missing. I wanted to be in charge of my own destiny. It may, be my, it may be a weakness in me. I'm always wondering what I'll do next. Enough is never enough. It wasn't until I discovered Starbucks that I realized what it means when your work truly captures your heart and your imagination. And that, my friends, is where we're gonna finish today. Um, so he had it all, right? Six years now. Keep in mind, six years out of college. So that's 10 years, right? So he's working at it. And he's almost 30 now. Um, but now he's like thinking, you know, there's something missing, right? And, and this is where that entrepreneurial, you know, beast inside of us sometimes is woken up, you know, and that's where I was, you know, when I started my company 10 years ago, I felt like there was something missing. Um, there's something that I, I, I was getting antsy. There's something that I needed to do. Um, and so that's starting to get woke up in him. And um, that's where we're going to finish up today for story time. I'm excited to come back. So we'll be back together tomorrow um, for another edition. Uh, we may switch up the timing a little bit. You know, I, last week I did one at 730. So be on the lookout. I'll put a countdown on my Instagram story. We may go at seven, we may go at 7.30 tomorrow morning. I just gotta check on my schedule, but I'll let you guys know. Um, but we'll be back here. All of the episodes you can check out on the YFYI podcast if you missed any, or on my Facebook page. Um, just look at for Sunny D, S-O-N-N-Y-D. And if you're checking out the podcast, just go to yfyipodcast.com. All these episodes are recorded, so you can listen to the past ones. You can get caught up. You can listen to any of them. There's almost 200 episodes. Story time we've been doing only for the last probably 10 or 15 episodes. Oh, no, actually, no, 30, 36. So there's probably like 35 episodes of story time on there. Um, but these are all going to be recorded, so if you miss one. But I'll be back. 
again tomorrow morning for story time. Hope you guys have an amazing Memorial Day. Um, thanks for tuning in. Thanks for hanging out. Can't wait to share with you more on this great company, Starbucks. The story continues next time, guys. Have a great day. Hey guys, Sunny D here again. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that episode and got to know a little bit more about this guy, Howard Schultz, and how, you know, really no matter, I think one of the big takeaways for me was just really understanding like no matter where you start, um, no matter what you've got, no matter if you have zero or really when you start, it's never too late. I'm excited to come back for the next episode as we find out what you know Howard's gonna do now that he's he's kind of made it you know he's almost 30 he's got he's living the American dream he's doing way better than um, you know he ever had it as a kid and with his parents and how he grew up um, to start from there and but he's got that itch that that itch that's kind of making him think you know what else what else is out there I want to take charge of my destiny and that's how the entrepreneurial you know, episode begins. So we're going to get back um, at it with story time on the next episode as we continue to explore, you know, the Starbucks company, the great coffee company and and learn more about how this company was uh, was founded and formed and built into the iconic brand it is today. So look forward to having you on the next episode of the YFY podcast as we continue story time and study Starbucks. So hopefully you'll join. And if you're listening to this and you haven't ever came to a live story time, you can catch it uh, Monday through Friday mornings. Uh, Usually we start at 9 a.m. We may move it a little earlier sometimes, but you can always find out on Instagram. If you're following me at SunnyD1.0, you can find out when that's going down. So I'm looking forward to having you guys back. Thanks again for tuning in to the YFYI podcast. And remember, this is the place you come to learn how to build your business right once or else you will be doomed to have to build it again. Thanks for listening and I'll talk to you soon.